0: Welcome to MedTech Connect, a digital health regulations podcast from Sightline and MedTech Insight. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, U.S. regulatory reporter. Every month, we sit down with an expert in the digital health regulations field, and we explore the latest and greatest in digital health regulations, from AI and ML, to cybersecurity concerns, to the fight to protect medical data. New episodes drop monthly, so make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. This week, I'm talking to John Lepard, Senior Analyst and Vice President at Washington Analysis. We get into TSET, which stands for Transitional Coverage of Emerging Technologies, a new pathway from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that is designed to provide transitional coverage for breakthrough devices. Having worked with and around CMS for a while, John talks about the ins and outs of the program, what it's intended to do, and why it may not be as promising as we hoped. We also get into the complexities of covering digital health products through Medicare and Medicaid, so it's a super interesting interview for those who are not familiar with CMS. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about TSET today.
1: Very glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh one of those quirky topics that is always fun to sink your teeth into.
0: Yeah. So do you want to kind of talk about what you do and how you got into this field, how you became an expert in CMS?
1: Sure. Uh, such, that as it, such as it is, I mean, you probably got that line from my mom. Um, but So I work with uh, Washington Analysis, where... A boutique investment research shop that focuses specifically on policy um, and how that how that impacts the financial market. So we're always looking at what's going on in D.C. or how it may impact typically, you know, regulated companies or pretty much any companies that have um, tradable securities. Uh, I should say, I've been with the firm for. 12 years now. I had initially moved to D.C. working with the Bush administration at the National Economic Council. Um, from there, tried out the kind of think tank and, and lobbying world a little bit. And after that, it was it was kind of time to get a real job and moved on from that. So it's um, to anybody who's listening who uh, might be um, overwhelmed with how complicated you know, CMS policy can be. That's that's certainly just fine, and it, it takes a very long time to get your, your head around it. But kind of once you can shove your brain into thinking in a very CMSE kind of way, things start do start to make sense.
0: Yeah, so today I wanted to talk to you about TSET, which is the Transitional Care for Emerging Technologies. So for those who aren't familiar with this program, what's it trying to do? Yeah, let's start there first.
1: So big criticism going back years. Um, in the device space has always been that, you know, you spend all this time, energy, money on um, bringing a product to market, conducting clinical studies, bringing it to the FDA. And once you get FDA approval, you're not there yet. It can still be quite some time before you're gonna pick out coverage, both Medicare and commercial. Typically, I'd say, you know, it's like three years, four years, depending on how you measure coverage. It can be five, six, seven years at the median uh, for truly novel devices. So, you know, industry and stakeholders have been climbing for for a long time is we need to do better than this. You know, these are products that are reviewed by FDA. They're safe and effective. And so therefore, they deserve a fair shot at, at Medicare coverage, considering how meaningful the Medicare market is just for healthcare in general. There's a lot of old people and a lot of sick people. The issue is that FDA and CMS have different regulatory standards. FDA is looking at whether a product is safe and effective, or actually for devices, it's whether um, there's a reasonable likelihood that it's safe and effective. Whereas CMS is looking at whether something is quote unquote, reasonable and necessary. That reasonable and necessary standard has never really been like articulated. There's not like a place in statute you can look to that's gonna give you a list of bullet points, of what that means, which A, leaves a lot of ambiguity, but B, has traditionally been understood as having a robust data set that's readily generalizable to the Medicare population. Um, When you're talking about older and sicker people, these are people who have greater um, incidence of comorbidities, who have greater healthcare needs. So, you know, the bar, um, everybody always looks at like, well, they're FDA approved. Yeah, but like private insurance companies, they're not just looking at that. They're looking at, does this make sense for our patient population who in this case has unique needs? PSAP is effort 2.0 uh, you know, over the last you know five or six years to, to try to better streamline that process. This emerged first out of the um, Trump administration role, MSIP, the Medicare coverage of innovative technologies, which pretty much said if you are an FDA-approved breakthrough device which typically happens early on in the product cycle, like phase one data or really even preclinical trials. And then you are subsequently approved under the initial rule, um, you would get guaranteed four years of coverage under Medicare. That sounds great. It's got some functional drawbacks associated with it. Kind of like I alluded to about needing to bend your head around um, how CMS thinks about these things is, Essentially, every product, service, item, device, et cetera, that's paid through through Medicare has to have a very, very square hole. And you, know, you need to have a square peg to go into it. So what I mean by that is there are distinctive and explicitly outlined benefit categories. So um, you can have everything from a drug to an implantable device to durable medical equipment that's traditionally used in the home. What do we do with like AI based services or algorithms or software services? That's something that Medicare doesn't really provide for. And then take something like diagnostics. There's Medicare law that says, you know we don't really pay for screening services. We don't really pay for healthcare in the absence of an actual injury or ailment. So what do we do for these types of products that don't really have that square peg that it can fit nice and neatly? Biden administration comes in, looks at that, and says, this is kind of unworkable as just like a blank check or opening up the floodgates to coverage. But they acknowledge, yes, we do need to streamline coverage of devices. So they scrap that rule, and they introduce T Set, I think like brass tacks, it doesn't really create anything new. It's certainly a far cry away from what MSIP would have done but essentially it outlines a new commitment on the part of CMS to engage in early conversations with manufacturers up to a year from when they're anticipating FDA approval to see, are there existing coverage policies that might work for you, um, both at a national level and at the local level through Medicare administrative contractors? Are there any existing pathways that we can put you in? Or are you a novel enough, technology that we need to work closer with you to develop a national policy for you. And the thinking or, you know, kind of the way it reads to me, frankly, is building off of something that's known as the Parallel Review Program. This has been around since about 2010. It was a program that CMS and FDA jointly established to essentially say that, like, while you're submitting your data to the FDA, submit it to us as well, and we can start a coverage policy at around the same time. Now, it's been 13, 14 years um, since that went into effect, and two companies have successfully gone through it. There hasn't been a lot of adoption. Big reason for that is not everybody really wants national coverage necessarily, for some reasons we can get into later. But the idea would be two things that I think stand out in particular for TSEP. A, it really is just kind of that early conversation with CMS to identify the best pathway forward. But importantly, a lot of device makers, particularly like novel technologies that are expected to have wide utilization, end up in something called coverage with evidence development, CED, which pretty much means we'll cover you, but we've identified these evidentiary gaps, performance data that we don't think necessarily really captures you know, the Medicare population that we care about. So you're going to have to do a registry, you know, providers have to participate in a registry or a post-approval study as a condition of coverage, which tends to be a limiting factor in terms of just how broadly you could go. So the idea would be if you get in early to CMS, identify those evidentiary gaps come up with a plan, CMS will approve that evidence development plan, and they will ideally, in their words, develop a coverage policy within six months of you getting FDA approval, with kind of the goal being we will also time limit this, and this plan will have definitive benchmarks for success. Manufacturers that get coverage with evidence development, it's Nice up front in that it's kind of a, a way to get your foot in the door and start getting you know start getting coverage, but it's kind of like Hotel California—you you, you can check in and you you never leave. There's been almost thirty of these over the last twenty five years, and virtually all of them are still going. Um, but CMS effectively putting like time constraints on this is a little bit more of I think an enticement for industry. The puts and takes to kind of summarize all of that is that it really isn't anything new. It builds upon a pathway that already exists. There was nothing really that was stopping CMS from doing everything that they outlined in TSET prior to the release of this notice, but they at least outline a more definitive timeline, which I think is kind of an effort to tell industry, you know, work with us. We're aware that you don't want to be trapped in this kind of limbo, you know, study requirement forever, and we'll spell out some more explicit guidelines. Uh, this would be limited, or at least CMS's expectation is that this would be limited to to five applicants per year, which, you know, I think there's about 800 or so breakthrough device designations from the FDA currently. So, you know, five, not great, but it's better than nothing, I suppose.
0: Yeah, well, actually, it's a good point that you brought that up now, because I did want to go into device eligibility. There's definitely more to unpack with, like, maybe how this will be received. We'll definitely talk later about The program, quote-unquote program, it's, it's mostly just a commitment, as you were saying, and what happens next. But going back a little bit, this is a digital health regulations podcast. And one of the interesting things about TSET is that the breakthrough devices that will qualify for TSET, they need to be a part of an established benefit category already. So digital health products, you know, you said AI, you said algorithms, you said software as a medical device they're on the forefront of medical devices. So how will they fit into this program, if at all?
1: This one's a little bit tough, and I think it's gonna really depend on the characteristics of of each device itself. The bottom line I think would be though, I I don't really think it's, it's some immediate tailwind for digital health more generally for exactly the reasons you outlined primarily being the need for a benefit categorization. To kind of spell that out, let's let's walk through a like two real world examples here. Um, one would be pair therapeutics, their reset cognitive behavioral therapy um, for substance abuse, um, and the other would be applied VR, uh, their relieve RX app and headset for, uh, for back pain. Both of these companies received new Medicare billing codes um, over the last year, but only one of them is actually getting paid um, or has coverage and, and a definitive Formal benefit categorization. CMS historically does not pay for software. The rationale is that medical products need to be that. And more importantly, to the exclusion of all other purposes. So, you know, that's why you don't get paid for a smartphone, um, even though like take something like diabetes where you know continuous glucose monitors absolutely have Bluetooth connectivity. Most people who are using them are really only looking at it on their phone. Medicare does not pay for that. You need to have a standalone reader that is only for glucose, even if it just lives in a drawer and we're forwarding all of our information to the phone, the point would just be, well, that's what makes it durable medical equipment. That's, it's medical. That's the only thing it does to the exclusion of everything else. So take Care, for example. They've got their app-based platform that does, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy over like 60 or so sessions, but it's utilized on a smartphone. And so the push that the company had made when they were uh, applying for uh, an individual billing code was since there's no way in like medical coding lingo to describe this, there's a real access problem. And, you know, even... Private insurers can't get on board and they don't have to operate by the same rules as CMS that really needs this rigid benefit categorization, To which CMS said, sure, I'll buy that. But they were very, very clear in their decision saying that like this is reasonable, that non-government payers would want a way to identify this. So they establish a new code and that's going to go out into the world and it can be used by private insurers and the like. It can be used by Medicare as well. There's just no separate payment associated with it. There's no coverage associated. It's just kind of a way of like tracking and describing this this item. Think about it like like a barcode. The flip side of that is applied VR. Essentially you put on a headset, it's virtual reality. It works you through a number of sessions to better deal with chronic pain. CMS, when they looked at that, said, okay, this too runs via software. That's the only way it works. But this software is only terrible with this headset. If I were to take the software and put it on a laptop, it wouldn't do the same thing. And this headset, it's actually locked from a software standpoint um, that I cannot add other things to it, nor can I take off. The software. So, like they view them essentially the software and the headset as one device. And that's really the crux. Software, generally speaking, like as a service, to get coverage, like you need to hitch a ride to something else that has that formal benefit categorization. So, when CMS reviewed that, they said, okay, we view these two things as inextricably linked. Therefore, you are durable medical equipment, you have a benefit categorization. Here's a code, here's money, there you go. Of course, getting a code and, and reimbursement is separate from getting coverage. There can be a dollar amount associated with your device. It doesn't mean that somebody's necessarily paying for it. Like if you think about it, like you go to a restaurant, there's a number of things on the menu, but just because they're there doesn't mean that you want it or that when you buy it, your credit card company is gonna say that that they're gonna pay for it. It works in pretty much the same way. And that's where kind of set comes in. So what I mean in outlining all of that is I do see a scenario where TSET can streamline coverage for digital technologies that meet these benefit categorization standards, but what TSET doesn't do, what it can't do is change the underlying law and the underlying calculus that CMS uses to, to determine whether or not something is actually a medical service in the first place. So it's it's really gonna depend on who the actual applicants are and what their product looks like. And if I was them, I, I'd be thinking about, you know how do I make this case to CMS?
0: I mean, that's also a really good segue into kind of some skepticisms about the program. So we talked about device eligibility you said only 5 devices are expected by CMS to be covered you need to fit into a benefit category so if you're a digital health device you might have to you might have to pitch yourself in a different way so the reason we're doing this interview now at the beginning of September even though this episode is coming out in October is because the comment period for this notice just closed what are what are people saying what are your thoughts on the notice and then what happens next you know CMS has these hundreds some comments from members of the industry, do they just say, here's a start date?
1: Excellent question. Logistically speaking, CMS doesn't have to do any, procedurally. They issue this as, it's known as a notice with comments, which a a, a notice is more or less, here's a thing, this is what we're doing, We're, we're letting you know. In contrast to a rule that is like really establishing like a new pathway where you have to propose it, take comments, respond to those comments, issue a final rule, give an effective date, doesn't work like that for a notice, which goes back to kind of what I said about there isn't really anything procedurally that like CMS couldn't do before they put this out. They're more just like letting everybody know, here's how we're thinking. So there is some feedback from industry. I mean, I think they're generally speaking, broadly supportive of the direction that CMS is going. Obviously they would, I think, like it opened more broadly with kind of the key issues being this needs to be open to more than five applicants per year. That's probably going to be tough. I I mean, I I think that is more to do with CMS resource constraints. They want to encourage CMS to take a broader or more expansive look at these benefit categorization questions, prioritizing actually like digital health and digital therapeutics and coming up with with a way to turn it into that square peg when we're viewing it through that context. That I think is also probably going to be a little bit tough. I suspect what CMS would say is they refer to as beyond the scope. Um, like, yes, like that's, that's a reasonable thing for you to bring up, but that's, it's just not what we're talking about here. Here, we're talking about a coverage pathway, not our benefit categorizations. Like there's a time and a place, but CMS is in the process of trying to figure this out. So I, I think that's, that's probably going to go through like a different pathway that has little to do with this in the meantime. But so bottom line is like CMS doesn't really have to issue uh, like a finalized version of this. Um, I suspect they will. They had indicated that, you know, we'll be establishing a dedicated website and this will have information on applicants and they can theoretically just open it up tomorrow and refine this as, as time goes on. There's no need to respond to comments now or anything. In terms of the overall impact, I think it's, it's, it's good, not great um, is kind of the bottom line. There are kind of inherent difficulties associated with this pathway in general, and it kind of goes back to the experience with the parallel review program, where again, like there were only two companies that made it through. Part of that is also a lack of interest it is oftentimes, you know, even though going from like Medicare contractor to contractor, you know, there's there's seven max, they have I think, 13 jurisdictions. Um, It can be time consuming, obviously, to go to each one of those. But if you strike out at one, you've got six others you could still go to. Whereas if I go to CMS from the get-go and ask for a national policy, if I don't like the way it turns out, I'm just kind of out of luck. So that that would be point number one. Point number two is the MACs also lack the authority to uh, mandate these coverage with evidence development requirements that CMS really seems to be leaning on as almost the default pathway, I think, for these TSET applicants, which again, like getting initial coverage is great, running a study is time intensive it costs money usually you know these often get relegated to like large academic medical institutions which you know are not ubiquitous around the country so it it kind of has an inherent like volume limitation associated with that if you're trying to ramp up you know a product launch so do i want to go down the national pathway or you know do i just want to take my chances with the max and see what happens oh and then lastly you know this still doesn't really address the benefit categorization If there is a product take like Applied VR that meets these benefit categorization requirements, this can theoretically, yes, streamline coverage for you, but it doesn't allow CMS to just change the law and change the calculus of whether or not they view a device as actually being eligible for coverage in the first place.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about Macs because one of the things Inti said is you could get to the end of this five years and then still be referred to a Mac.
1: That, that's one of those things that jumps out at the page at you a little bit, right? After after all of this, your your options is national coverage, no national coverage, denied national coverage, or max. Like, yeah, those were the options. Those were always the options. <laughs>
0: yeah. So it's a similar concept to the breakthrough program itself. Like, if you're getting the designation, you you're getting to interact with the FDA early, but it doesn't mean you have marketing authorization. You could just end up in the same place.
1: Precisely. That's. What is actually so interesting, actually, on a forward-going basis, too, is of those 800 or so breakthrough designations, it's about 8% or so have actually been approved. The FDA's run rate over the last couple of years is they're designating new breakthrough devices at about 150 a year. So even if we were to assume that each year there's going to be streamlined coverage for five, I mean, you're still not even keeping up with kind of what that backlog is already, um, assuming it's all novel devices, some of them will likely have like an existing coverage pathway that they can go through or that there's a local coverage decision that, you know, already kind of encapsulates their technology type. I think it's important to, to note that just you can apply for TSAT um, and they said, you know, like, we'll take up to five applicants a year. But implicit is that they can turn you down. They can say just, no, we don't think you're a good candidate or we're not prioritizing that issue area, or we have this other product that is going to affect way more beneficiaries. So we're going to focus on that. So it's it's kind of a, a nice that it's there, but I don't really know how much it real it really changes the status quo from like a kind of like a macro standpoint of like, you know, is the is the timeline from FDA approval to widespread coverage going to be meaningfully shrunk? No, probably not.
0: And that was my conversation with John Lapard about Tset. If you'd like to read more about TSET, you can find more stories at our website, medtech.sightline.com. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from MedTech Insight, you can find them under the podcast tab on our website. And if you'd like to hear more from our sister publications, you can follow Pharma Intelligence on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for more MedTech Connect episodes every month.